This is Isaiah, the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 10. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, ask a sign whether the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz replied, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said to Ahaz, O you house of Israel, is it not enough for you to try the patience of human beings? Will you also try the patience of God? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, there is a woman, a virgin, and she will conceive and bear a child, and she will call him Emmanuel. And he will be eating curds and honey before he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. By the time he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings whom you dread will be laid to waste. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I believe that hope is a choice. Now, that may seem that hope is just sort of natural, sort of the default position that uh, people come to easily. Uh, like little orphan Nanny, who in the face of everything is able to say that the sun will come up tomorrow. Or maybe like the American proverb with which we're very familiar that says hope springs eternal in the human breast. Maybe hope seems to be an easy matter or natural matter for people. Why, even atheists hope. I was uh, reading not too long ago about Robert Ingersoll. He was perhaps the most famous atheist of the 19th century. Ingersoll would roll into a town on a Monday or Tuesday and give a series of lectures on, on the uh, evils of God and the mistakes of Moses. And by that weekend, churches would end up just being half full or half empty. But when Ingersoll's brother, who was a United States senator, died in Washington, D.C., Ingersoll traveled to deliver his brother's eulogy personally. And this is what he said in part. He said, in the dark, hope sees a star and hope hears the rustling of an angel's wing. What? He's an atheist. How is this possible? Maybe even atheists hope. But I learned this week a, a new fact. Apparently animals hope as well. My wife said she was listening to NPR and there's a, a guy from the Tufts School of Veterinary Medicine. He's written a book about old dogs. And apparently when he was taking calls, they asked him about how do you know uh, which dogs will live longer than others? And he said this. He said, optimistic dogs live uh, longer than pessimistic dogs. How do you recognize an optimistic dog? I didn't know there were such things, but apparently even animals by nature hope. So hope seems like an easy matter. But is it really? Is hope just a matter of choosing to be positive over choosing to be negative? I think for the people of God, it gets more complex than that. Consider the case this morning of King Ahaz, the king of Judah, the king of Jerusalem. 735 years before Jesus, he is being threatened by two northern powers, the northern kingdom that they called Israel or Samaria back then, and Syria. Basically, they wanted Judah to join them in a three-way alliance against the bad bullies of the east, the Assyrians. And when he refused to join that political alliance, the kings of Israel and Syria threatened the king of Judah. And they said to Ahaz, if you will not join us, we will come conquer you. 
And Isaiah says, uh, the book of Isaiah, in the first part of chapter 7, that the people in Ahaz were so scared, they were shaking like a leaf on, on a tree in the wind. Well, what would he do? One of the things he thought about and apparently acted on was a political alliance. He decided to make a deal with the Assyrians themselves, who were big, who were bad, who were very brutal. And that was, the wisdom of that was about like a mouse turning to a cat to help them against two other mice. Not really a good plan. The other option he'd considered was Egypt. God had spent 600 years trying to get the people out of Egypt, and Ahaz wanted to take them back. So Isaiah, the prophet, knowing that there's a big choice in front of Ahaz, comes to him in chapter 7 and basically tells him, have faith in God, who promises to save him and deliver him. And in one of the more famous verses of the Bible, in Isaiah 7, verse 9, right before we picked up this morning, Isaiah even says to Ahaz, you've got to stand firm in faith or you will not stand at all. But Ahaz is not convinced. So Isaiah says, well, ask God for a sign. And Ahaz goes, oh, I could never do that. I wouldn't put God to a test and a show of false religious piety. So Isaiah says, fine, God will give you a sign. See that virgin over there? And no one's really sure who she is. She could have been a woman to whom Ahaz was engaged. Perhaps Isaiah was a widower and this was a woman that he was about to marry or just a woman on the street. We don't know. And he says, she will conceive and bear a child And before the child is old enough to know right from wrong, he'll be eating curds and honey, which means things will be in great shape. There'll be abundance for everybody. And before he knows right from wrong, the two kings that you're so afraid of, their land will be laid to waste. That's the sign God gives you. Now, that's what hope looks like. It's not an easy matter. It's not a default matter. It's not a matter of optimism. It's choose. It's a matter of choosing in a difficult circumstance between the evidences that are against God and the courage to go on with God, even though you don't have a whole lot of evidence to go on. That is faith. That is hope. See, one of the things we need to understand about signs in, in the um, Old Testament or signs in the Hebrew Bible, which I just really um, read about this week in, in a way that should have made sense to me all along, is this. Signs were never given by God to the people of God to um, create faith. They were never given as proof. They were always given as an encouragement to say, if you stay the course, if you hold faith, you'll look back and you'll see this as right. Let me give you an example. Let's say uh, there's Abraham. Abraham's been waiting years for a child and he has no child. So God one day says to Abraham, come here, look up, count the stars in the sky. That's how many your descendants will be. Well, now, when you look at that sign, it doesn't do anything for, uh, for Sarah and for fertility. It's just a sign that says one day you'll look back and see that faith in God was right. But it doesn't really do anything for you in the moment in the way of proof. Then there's Moses. Burning Bush is talking to Moses, who is a wanted man for murder in Egypt. Burning Bush tells him to go back, speak to the greatest man in the world at that time, the most powerful man, Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. So Moses says to God in the bush, yeah, I'm not going to know like this is going to work out. And God says, here's a sign. 
after you lead them out, you'll come back and worship me again on this mountain. Well, what about the interim? What do I go to Pharaoh with? Signs were never meant to be proof. They're never meant to give exact confidence. Faith always involves risk. And so basically God is saying by the time that child is weaned, which could be two or three years, or one alternate is by the time that child is a son of the law, which like bar mitzvah, which could be as many as 12 years, by the time in a few years, these kings are no more. But what kind of sign is that in the interim? A better sign might have been for Ahaz, like an an army of angels appear and say, all right, they'll take care of him. Or better yet, a tank. But he doesn't get that. He doesn't give anything to give him proof. Nothing takes the element of risk out of his choice. He still must choose of the evidence of the threatening kings versus the promises of God. And nothing ever makes that choice easy. Not for him, not for you, not for me. Real faith always involves choosing to risk based on the promises of God against the evidences that seem to be against those promises. And the evidences call him to wait on God and not make a political deal. Wait, whether it's two or three years or longer. But he chooses not to wait. To wait means to trust in God. It doesn't mean basically to do nothing. This is not a call to abdicate individual responsibility. There are still some things Ahaz can do, but he must trust in God to provide the ultimate solution, not figure that he can take God's place and solve the matter. And I wanted to tell you real quick that, that I'm not against individual responsibility or individual action. Oftentimes there are difficult circumstances in the world and, and we call on God and God promises to help, but God, God also expects us to help. A lot of people are hungry in the world. And one day we're told everybody's going to have enough to eat. But until that time, God calls on us to share. One day it says there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. But until that time, we're called to comfort one another in times of loss and sorrow. There are things we can do. But hope is a choice to keep our confidence in God and wait on God in the intervening time and do what God has called us to do. I'm not saying don't do anything. Uh, There are people that don't want to take responsibility. Every year at this time, I can't help but think of a football game. It's about seven years ago. New York Giants in their old stadium were playing somebody and it snowed. And so some of the fans uh, got a little hostile. They had too much Christmas cheer. And they started to direct their hostility at their opponents and the referees. And so they started making snowballs, which really in effect were ice balls. And started chunking them toward the field. And so the police began to make arrests and they were trying to uh, round up the people who were responsible. And one guy they arrested because they had his picture in the paper the next day doing this. They knew they had him. He got identified. Brought him in before the judge and the judge asked him about it and this is what he said. Well, everybody else was doing it. Well, the judge wasn't moved by that explanation so the guy decided he'd go on further and he said, and besides, if there hadn't been snow there in the first place, We are responsible. There are some things we are called to do. But always, always keeping our confidence and faith in God to deliver on God's promises. So often, we have to wait. Even when the signs point against waiting. Abraham waits till he's 100 to have a child. 
Isaiah predicts the Messiah in his book, in his prophecy, the Messiah doesn't come for 700 years. But they still must wait, as must Ahaz. But he chooses not to. Makes me wonder, why does God make us wait? You know, if we have issues in our family, why doesn't God just solve them right now? There's an illness, why aren't we healed immediately? When there's poverty, why don't people uh, just share everything equally and, and solve the deal? There's trouble at work, why doesn't God make it all right now? Why do we have to wait? And the answer is, I don't know. But when I look at the scriptures, a couple of things occur to me about waiting. The first one is this. We sometimes wait, are made to wait, because we're not ready to receive what God is going to give us. I mean, think about it. Uh, would you give a two-year-old a 10-speed for Christmas? Probably not yet. Perhaps you start them on a tricycle. Maybe they get training wheels later, and then they work their way up. They're not ready to receive perhaps what they ultimately will have. Not right now. Look at Joseph. 17 years old, Joseph has a dream that basically tells him he's going to rule the world. Is he ready to rule? I was 17 once. I raised three 17-year-olds. I'm going to give you the answer to this one. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's going to have to wait, but then he will be. He will be. Sometimes we, we wait because we're not ready. God can't give it to us yet. We couldn't handle the solution. We couldn't handle what was coming. Sometimes we wait because, well, the world's not ready yet. Or other people aren't ready. Sometimes God is going to move in our situation in a way that impacts other people. And they're just not in a position yet to be impacted. Think about Joseph. The famine hasn't come. It's not time yet for him at 17 to rule. But one day it will be. One day it will be. And think about the prophecy of the Messiah. It's 700 years before he comes. Well, what happened in that intervening 700 years? A lot of things, but let me tell you one in particular. Eventually, the Roman Empire started to come to power, and they paved 70,000 miles of road in the known world so that the good news of Jesus Christ spread quickly and fairly easily to the whole known world, which couldn't have possibly happened 700 years earlier. Sometimes, for reasons known only to God, we wait. But we wait in hope because we know that God is true to God's Word on God's time and terms. And when we don't wait, what happens then? Fast forward. Same pool of water where Isaiah met Ahaz the first time. Obviously, Ahaz was like looking at the water supply in case there was a siege. Same wall, same city wall. 34 years later, there's another king now of Jerusalem. His name is Hezekiah. Only this time at the wall, the messenger is not the prophet Isaiah. The messenger is from the Assyrian army. You see, Ahaz has invited them into relationship 34 years earlier. And true to form, the Assyrians have pillaged, plundered, burned, and assaulted their way all the way from Nineveh to the gates of Jerusalem. And the Assyrian ambassador brings word from King Sennacherib who says, look, Jerusalem, God, your God hasn't protected you from anybody from, uh, in any way from here and to Nineveh, and he's not going to protect you today. And Hezekiah must now make a choice. 
Augustine once said centuries ago that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger that things aren't the way they ought to be, but the courage to hold on to God until that time comes. So in anger, Hezekiah takes the note from the Assyrian ambassador, walks into the temple, puts it there in front of God and says, read this. Can he talk to you like that? In his anger, he knows and hopes for better. And in his courage, he holds on and waits for God to act. And if you know the rest of the story, within a while, on God's time and terms, the angel of death comes to the Assyrian camp and 185,000 soldiers die in one night. Sennacherib must limp back home. Years later, in his own temple, worshiping his own pagan god, he's assassinated. End of story. What does hope look like for us? Hope looks like having anger and frustration that things aren't better. Doing what God has called us to do to make them better. But to hold on in courage until God comes God's own self. In God's ways. And on God's time to make them better. Because God will come. And God will do what is right for us. And for the world.